As a rogue, it's easy for me to spot the perfect mark. I get anything I want with a little distraction and patience. But as a role player, screw patience. I can't wait for my Dungeon Crate to arrive every month. Dungeon Crate brings me amazing RPG accessories like dice, minis, adventures, and lots more. And rumor has it around the guild, you also get a digital crate with even more secret extras. Dungeon Crate has what I want. Take what you deserve and become a member of Dungeon Crate today at DungeonCrate.com. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow, I'll... Just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome to the Appendix and Book Club. I'm Jeff, and with me today is the sea demon himself, Hoy. Hello. And we are also joined by Strix Beltran, writer and designer of both video games and tabletop role-playing games. She is the co-creator of Bluebeard's Bride role-playing game. She has a master's in mythology and wrote a great article at Tor.com you can read called Why Minority Settings in RPGs Matter. Strix, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for inviting me. So uh, one thing we usually like to start with is by asking our guests how they got into role-playing. So what is your origin story? Oh, gosh, my role-playing origin story. Um, so basically, when I was a kid, I was a weird nerd and had no friends. Uh, <laughs> so there's this thing called the Internet where you could tell stories with play-by-post. So you would post a piece, the next person would post a piece, the next person would post a piece. So it was completely narrative-driven and there were no rules. And I cut my teeth on that for years. Um, and then I realized that like this existed in analog uh, and people played Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and so when I was 14, I played Dungeons and Dragons with my friends and had a terrible time. <laughs> oh no. Uh, I almost never returned to games ever again. Because it's one of those things where you're the only girl in the room and it's a bunch of boys and bad things happen. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was really, uh, really bad. And sometimes I wonder, like, what's wrong with me that I stayed uh, after those experiences? Um, but, you know, I think I cared very deeply about story. Um, and so that's what kept me to the genre. And I'm really glad because now, you know, I have this uh, amazing career telling stories and games. Uh, and I love my work. And so, um, you know, actually one of my big goals is to make gaming accessible and welcoming to everybody, uh, in part because of those experiences that I had. Did your friends get that they were, you know, that you were having a negative experience? I mean, I guess you were all very young, but, you know. I mean, we were like 14. No one had any social skills. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or, or any self-awareness. Right, right, right. No self-awareness, no. <laughs> so. no. I was just wondering Absolutely. if it was above and beyond the usual, you know, issues with just experiencing something the first time that you're not sort of in the in-group for, you know? No, it was definitely, there's like a sexual nature to it. So, yeah. 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 Okay, well, there's plenty of that in this book, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, Strix, um, before we started recording, you had mentioned that you weren't aware of the Appendix N prior. So I'm curious, after we asked you to join the show, when you kind of looked up the Appendix N, what were your kind of first impressions of what you saw? 
Uh, so I still don't actually know what the colloquial reference to Appendix N is. Oh, okay. So perfect. you can tell me right now. I would love to. So th that's great. This is a great opportunity to discuss that. So in the 1979 Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide, there are a bunch of appendices in the back. And Appendix N is the list of the authors and stories that inspired the creation of Dungeons and Dragons that Gary Gygax and his editors suggest that you read for inspiration. And it is a list predominantly of white men uh, who wrote stories from the 1910s to the 1970s, although there are three women on the list. And one of those authors is Fletcher Pratt. And um, although in that list, the only specific book recommended is The Blue Star, which we had discussed in an earlier episode, uh, Gary Gygax in the appendix end does suggest we also read the other works of Fletcher Pratt. And in the... Moldvay basic set and their list of inspirational reading that also tends to include more people like Ursula K. Le Guin and things like that. Mm -hmm. That list also lists Fletcher Pratt, but that one specifically recommends that you read The Well of the Unicorn. So that's kind of what the appendix N is. Okay, so that's how we got here. Exactly. So I guess maybe a better <laughs> question then would be, um, what has been your um, your history with fantasy reading? In fantasy literature. Uh, my history with fantasy reading is actually pretty deep. Um, basically, all I had for friends for a long time was fantasy books. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, I read Dune when I was 12. I read The Two Towers when I was 11. Um, you know, Dragon Riders of Pern, you know, Gene Wolfe, Neil Gaiman, uh, Ursula Le Guin. Uh, <laughs> so many good and also pulpy uh, science fiction and fantasy books, uh, like The Ice People. I don't know if you've ever read that one. Is that what no. it's called? Hang on one second. I, I just need to look this up because there's this amazing story, The Ice People. That was a <laughs> sci-fi book. Yes, it's called The Ice People. It's by Rene uh, Barjavel. Okay. Um, and it was the first time I had encountered uh, sex in a book. Uh, and I was like, oh my God, I was reading this in class and I was like, everyone's going to know I'm reading this. Um, but it was about the distant past and how it had actually been futuristic. And then they nuked themselves and we had to like start over and we found some survivors trapped in Arctic ice. Anyway, uh, that kind of craziness is like what you can experience in fantasy and sci-fi. And it's part of why I love the genre. Right, right. And actually a common theme that's come up is now that there seems to be a sort of, um, clear dividing line between science fiction and fantasy, but that story you're telling about is, is clearly a blending, and some various of the other books that we read for this project seem to be a blending. Do you think this uh, distinction is artificial between science fiction and fantasy? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you're going to get me started on this subject. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> Uh, my, my graduate training is in mythology, uh, and you know what mythology really is, is um, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves to, in order to understand who we are, right? And a lot of people misunderstand mythology as like ancient lies that we told ourselves about the cosmos um, to give ourselves a frame of reference. It's absolutely not what mythology is. Um, mythologies are stories um, that tell us what's up about ourselves. And when we look at science fiction and fantasy, what is science fiction really about? It's really about good science fiction is about humanity and expecting it and understanding what makes us tick and pushing the ideas of what we could be or who we're going to be, um, who we were kind of to the edge. 
and fantasy does it just in sort of a different vein. Um, so, you know, there's a big discussion between the difference between magic and science. Um, and I kind of hold the standpoint that really at the end of the day, there's not a significant difference mm-hmm. uh, in those two things. Um, they operate in the same way on some levels and they operate in very different ways in other levels. But what they do is help us make meaning of the world. Um, and like science can always tell us how, but it can't tell us why, right? And religion and mythology can tell us why, but it can't tell us how, right? Because it's using metaphor and um, science is using fact and that's mythos and logos. And those are two different sides of like the coin, but you actually, you need both. Mm-hmm. So I see this reflected in modern arguments over science fiction and fantasy as sort of this hyper-rationalist ideal that has sprung up in Western culture where everything must be rational or hyper-rational in order to be right and true, um, reflected in how we treat our fiction. And I don't agree. So. <laughs> there you go. Well fashion, said. This will actually tap into this week's book, which is, well, The Unicorn by Fletcher Pratt. Uh, did you want to do anything, uh, any preamble to that, Jeff? As, uh, or we, or we well, sure. Our... Let's let's quickly discuss the editions that we are reading. Okay. So um, I today am working with the 1976 Ballantine paperback with this Brothers Hildebrand cover, mm-hmm. and here we've got Error Alverson on a ship fighting off a sea demon. Um, But also the reason I have this cover today is because I lost the other paperback that I had. Um, I originally had the 1979 paperback with the Daryl Sweet cover, Uh and I brought that to Gen Con with me, and I think I left it in the hotel room. So I had to buy a new copy uh, (laughs) because I am obsessively um, uh, marking these things up. Now, Strix, I know that um, you're reading a a digital copy on an e-reader. Yeah, so you're you're going Kindle for this one. I have no idea what edition it is. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure because I did the same thing. I have that same copy that you have, Jeff. Although I actually have the Lancer one in my office, um, but it's from uh, Faded Page, which I think is pretty much from the same copy that we're reading, the 1976 copy. So I think we're actually on the same texts, um, as far Perfect. as I know. So, and then we'll quickly look at our high Gaxian word of the day, and our word today is. Plenipotentiary. And plenipotentiary is found both on page 12 and on page 27 in the version that I have. And on page 12, one of the characters says, you seek employment? I um, I wage you as plenipotentiary before them and will pay well from which it will grow that either they send you back to me with another message for a second payment or find employment enough for you on their own. And plenipotentiary is a person, especially a diplomat, invested with the full power of independent action on behalf of their government, typically in a foreign, typically in a foreign country. So it's a wonderfully dense and impenetrable word, much like much of this text and prose. Uh, Strix, do you have any uh, contributions to this section? Uh, so I'll go with a simple word that is just used in a way that I'd never seen before, which is clerk. Mm, Um, the first 20 pages 
you know, this guy talks about being a clerk and I'm like, does he do sums? Does he just know how to read and write? Is that what makes him special? No, it turns out he's a freaking magician and that's what a clerk <laughs> means. <laughs> like he can, he can like draw pentagrams with his blood on the ground. That's clerkship. And I was just like, okay, I am going to have to uh, adjust my <laughs> vocabulary for the rest exactly. of this book. And that turned out to be true. When I see resumes in the future, I will question what somebody <laughs> means when they say they are a clerk. Yeah, especially if they were a, a video store clerk, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Perfect. So we can head on into the library now and just start discussing what we think of the Well of the Unicorn. So Strix, let's start with you. Uh, what were your What are your initial thoughts of this of this uh, book? <laughs> okay, I'll be honest. So initial thoughts. Um, I, you know, got your guys' email. I had my PA check you out. She said, they're good. I said, okay. I started reading the book you sent me. And I was like, did she mess up? Are they, <laughs> are they having me on? Like, what kind of show is this? Uh, are they gonna, like, am I being made a fool of? Uh, and so I went and I looked for myself and I was like, no, this is, this is serious. Okay, I guess I should read this book. Um, but I found it immediately dense and impenetrable. Um, I found the use of pronouns bizarre. Uh, I was like, okay, so it's fantasy Denmark versus fantasy Vikings, but they're ruled by an emperor, which reminds me of China. Like, uh, <laughs> and it, it actually reminded me a lot of um, Gene Wolfe's work, um, mm. which, if yeah. you're familiar, is particularly the Green Knight. Um, while the Green Knight's premise is more about, you know, the unreliable narrator. This um, felt kind of similar in that it's about this nobody guy who rises to power but doesn't really want it um, and can't find peace. And um, I saw some some echoes of some similar, I don't know what I say, gestalt um, across the genre that made me go, okay, I can contextualize this book. I understand this a little bit better. Yeah, and I, I got to say, thank you for being such a good sport and joining us, because you definitely ended up getting one of the hardest assignments <laughs> that we've given any guests. And it wasn't intentional. Like a lot of this stuff, we really don't know what these books are before we dive into them. And we had read one Fletcher Pratt before, and I don't know if you agree with me or not, Hoy, but although I didn't love the Blue Star, the Blue Star was at least like readable. And I found this to be a slog. Um, I confess that I am still 20 pages from the <laughs> the end of this book, and I'm usually oh. able to get it. <laughs> I, I know what happens, but... Um, well, I'm of two minds of this book. Um, uh, I will say this, that the entire time I felt like my... Um, I was on a soap bubble, and I was just kind of sliding around and couldn't quite stick to any... Like, okay, like, who was that again? My idea mm -hmm. of, like, what's going on in this scene is maybe not... what Like, I read through the scene, and like, Wait, did I just think that I thought that about this scene? And then two scenes later, I say, oh, this is referring back to, you know, however long ago. So it is a very hard book to grasp. Um, not in the way, like, the, the super uh, lush prose that the Air Merit books make it hard to grasp. This is more like there's stuff left out, right? It seems like this, like, uh, as you say, weird pronouns, um, stuff that happens off screen that people seem to all know about but never describe back to you. Um, but on the other hand, um, I thought that uh, Blue Star was so interior, and this was a little less interior because there's actually things happening in the world, that I was able to at least latch onto some of that, which I didn't wasn't able to for Blue Star. Anyway, that's my. I mean, impression. I think there's actually a silver lining to how these pros make us feel, 
and that it creates kind of a liminal space that I don't often experience anymore in books where you really just don't know what's going on. So your mind has shifted just like a little bit to the right or mm -hmm. to the left. And you start experiencing the prose in kind of a different way than normal. Um, uh, I was frustrated with the prose a lot of the time, but I did enjoy that feeling of liminality and like truly being in another world. Because if you're truly in another world, you're not grasping everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did appreciate that. Like, I don't want to just like say, no, this is, there is no value here. Um, of course. I actually, I thought that particular aspect of the prose being difficult was an interesting counterbalance. Right. And I think your point just generally about mythology, I think is really applicable here. Like these people are telling stories, trying to make sense of these sort of countervailing philosophical structures about whether there's free will and, and what do we owe to each other and stuff like that. So I think that that's really, you know, an, an interesting thing to bring to what normally would just be sort of epic fiction, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what Fletcher Pratt was doing here was really pretty innovative in a lot of ways, because this is a pretty early example of uh, secondary world fantasy fiction, where it truly is an, a, a world that's not our own, that is also not connected to our own, like Narnia or Oz or something. This truly is kind of its own universe. And uh, this was published after The Hobbit, but before the, L the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So in a lot of the ways, this is pretty groundbreaking material. So it, it, is, it certainly has its uh, historical merits. And there are things about the book that I did enjoy that we can absolutely get into in a little bit. But overall, I definitely found, I, I felt that the characters lacked depth and dimension. I felt that the, the politics and the movement of armies was very confusing and difficult for me to follow. Um, so, and, and there were some major plot points that happened that like I completely didn't get. Yeah. yeah. And I had, to, and I was like, and, and in order to understand this, I'd probably have to reread the last like 20 pages and I'm not doing that. Right, right. Uh, so like there was the moment where like, I know that Giffen at some point um, breaks his heart, but I didn't quite understand how that happened. Right. And I was also very befuddled by the scene with Melibo and his father, the, like the, the, the magic spell that happened near the end that he had to go in and, that that scene really confused me. I don't know if you guys had any yep. more clarity. But okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's perfect. <laughs> but certainly, like, let, let maybe chatting about what we think uh, worked for a moment, I think, is great. And I really appreciate that you were starting to do that a bit, Strix. Um, I feel like some of the things that um, really worked well for me were I thought the... Um, I thought the injection of, the, um, of kind of the... Um, of the more fantastical elements was was interwoven quite nicely. I liked the talking owl. I liked the sea demons. I liked kind of those moments. I thought they worked quite well. Um, also, I thought magic was really interesting in this world. You know, I think it's because magic in this world is so draining that often error was kind of questioning whether or not it was even worth kind of going through the trouble of going to the magic. And by the end, he's almost mostly given up on magic. Yeah, because it constantly emasculates him, right? And he's trying to run an army, 
And the, at least, like, the fishermen are like, ha, 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 yeah, like, exactly. you weakling boy. Right. <laughs> Which I thought was really interesting. Right. And yeah. even, even Meliboe, who is supposedly the mightiest wizard in the story, is always like, nah, magic's not the answer for this thing that you're trying to solve right now. You know? <laughs> it's, it's really not. <laughs> and really, some of the most powerful magics Melibo does in this story is yeah. what, like, he has a blue flame on top of his finger at one <laughs> right. point, And, like, it, it's really not that right. groundbreaking. Right. Oh, I can show you your destiny, but you really don't want to know. It's like... <laughs> it's, Um, uh, yeah and and there's always some kind of consequence right like and it was a little unclear to me like whether the sea demons that um for example at the beginning that that um erar is tasked with sort of dispelling were actually part of meliboe's plot to somehow get erar to ingratiate himself with these islanders you know there's always this sort of very elliptical stuff going on uh now based on oh i read that scene very differently Mm -hmm. um so to me, it came across that Melibo had been like basically hoodweaking these islanders for a really long time, and it finally got so bad that he pieced out because yeah. he was basically layering other demons yeah. on top of the sea demons to keep them at bay. Right. But those other demons weren't any better. Right. So when uh, Arar finally came to like fix it, fix it, it was like this terrible like snake's nest of a situation right. and and that's why he got like knocked flat like that first day and almost died anyway right. oh, i don't geez. know see there's like a million interpretations no, no i think i think you're closer to it than i am but i think that and then that obviously it causes the problems because uh you know the, the islanders are kind of haha you know gaithan who is the first woman he falls in love with is initially very sympathetic uh but then she kind of turns on when she sees him kind of emasculated because she's so embedded in the culture of the islands i mm-hmm. guess um and uh but she, on the other hand, is in love with Visto, who is later, you know, we find out is, is homosexual and has no interest mm-hmm. in her. And so, the, I, actually, Jeff, I say that um, you talk about the, the characters being kind of weak. I think it's a different style. I think that there is a lot going on under the surface with the characters, but it's more resemblant of, say, um, and here we're getting to either epic poetry or mythology, like, um, uh, you know, the characters in the Odyssey and the Aeneid have, and... Um, the Iliad have psychology. It's just so alien to what we in modern day think of. So Erar is the closest equivalent. He's got more interiority. Um, whereas we see, for example, the star captains, you know, they each have a way of behaving. And Ivadne, she has her pride. She's a pretty complex thinker. But it's so alien to us that we're, we have a hard time grasping. I mean, I think the writing style itself is very detached. And that's the issue. Mm-hmm. Also fair. Now, one of the things that I found interesting was uh, in order to kind of wrap my brain around the story more, after I finished reading, I read a couple of plot synopses. And what I found interesting is that when I would read these various plot synopses, none of them mentioned any of the female characters at all. But then when I read the back page of this book, the way it's advertised on the back, it's got this huge focus on the female characters. And I want to quickly read this. And it says, the ruthless and greedy Vulcans drove young Error Alverson from his people and his heritage. But soon, aided by the mysterious enchanter Melibo, he embarked on a desperate odyssey through a treacherous world where magic worked, sometimes at a perilous price. As one of a band of desperate rebels fighting against his Vulcan oppressors, Error's future quickly becomes enmeshed with a trio of women. Each one seemed born to alter his destiny. Githin, a snow blonde beauty who fired his blood with a heart as cold as ice. Evadne, a savage warrior maid determined to have her way with her battles and her men. Agira, a princess of the well 
uh, from whose waters came peace, a lady who sought him only ter- uh, who a lady who brought him only turmoil and <laughs> turmoil and strife. Man, I'm yeah. <laughs> tripping over my words. Yeah. But uh, we've got this big focus on the three female characters on the back here, and I'm curious, what did you guys think of Githin, Avadni, and Argira? Uh, hmm. Hmm. How to sort that out? Um, so. <laughs> Um, I liked Githin at first because she was like, I can do what the boys do and shoot a bow Mm -hmm. and I'm competent and Mm -hmm. I'm interesting. But then she like had this huge flouncy tantrum uh, and basically wrote um, Arar off. Um, I had thoughts that it was actually the author using these women as um, like psychological evolution points and Mm -hmm. structures as a metaphor for a man's quote growth, a man's growth Mm. um, and the stages he goes through to arrive where Arar ends at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, using women as that vehicle is questionable. Um, But that's actually what I saw the pattern emerging is that and actually, Gene Wolfe does this too, um, is using these women as focus points for the male psychology processing. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I like that. How about you, Hoy? What do you think of these characters? I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with that analysis, but I do think that um, that uh, Githin is kind, of, is kind of more simple, but I do think Evadne and Argera are actually fairly complex in their... Um, and they're capable of seeing things that that Arar is not capable of seeing by either by virtue of their cultural background or just their general life circumstances. Um, so I I do think that um, there's two frames. I think that Fletcher Pratt is is quite an astute person, but within the context of which he's writing, he's not able to put the women front and center as you know co-equal protagonists uh, with Arar uh, in the books. Um, so. You know, that's that's at least where he stood at that point. But he was again, even with the Blue Star, um, the I forget the name of the protagonist in the Blue Star. She was a key element of it, but then she becomes increasingly passive, and mm. the other character sort of takes over. Yeah, um, that's true. Um, so, so I, Hoy, what did you think of Agera and her sort of like straw man representation of like what peace is? Because the whole point of the book in the Well of the Unicorn is that mm-hmm. the well is like the soma, mm-hmm. right? And it doesn't actually help anybody. And the closing line is there's no peace but that that is interior to us, yeah. I think, or something like that, something which like I that. actually don't agree with. Uh, um, and he he used the this woman and her place as this princess, right, of this this guardian of the well to kind of put forth this political idea. Then the author shuts shuts down. Right. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think there's another element of context. So there's a mythological element of which, obviously, you're much, much more versed than I am. Um, but there's also a historical context, which is that Fletcher Pratt was a military historian, and this was literally written three years after the end of World War II. Um, so what is the duty we owe to either go to war or seek peace, especially when there's great injustice happening at the same time? And I'm not saying this is a, a literal analog to anything that's going on during that time period, but I think this is something that would be sitting in, his, in the forefront of his head, uh, along with his understanding of mythology, you know, what, again, I don't have a complete understanding of what he understood about mythology, but I think he was, you know, well-read and quite versed. So, um, is he putting forward Arar or Meliboet or any single one of these people as a correct 
in their interpretation of what's going on in the world? I don't think so. And I think that that is like what you're saying about Gene Wolfe, that the characters are unreliable in that regard. So whatever he is saying, um, uh, error at the end, he may be equally wrong. <laughs> he may only be right in that very moment for himself, right? And Because he, he's always so full of doubt through the entire story anyway. So that's as far well, as I can take. Thanks for bringing up the, um, the cultural context of what was happening at the time, because yeah. I'd momentarily forgotten, and that's actually really important. Fair, fair. And also, I think um, an, an interesting thing that's happening here with both Evadne and Argira is that kind of uh, common pulp trope of kind of the fair-haired, fair-skinned kind of virgin female who is then kind of mirrored by the darker-skinned, darker-haired, kind of sultry, uh, fiery female figure that they then kind of play off of, uh, where they both play off of the male character. And kind of, it's kind of that, that virgin whore complex kind of uh, brought into kind of the pulp fantasy world. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess, uh, Strix, how did, you, how did you feel about that kind of stuff happening in the story? You know, not thrilled. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I've read a lot of bad science fiction and fantasy over the years. And so, uh, like, this is just something that I actually just didn't engage a lot in with the text. I was like, okay, you're, you're doing the thing. Uh, I don't have a lot to learn from this. Yeah. Moving on. All right. Fair, fair. <laughs> and I, I think that's something that we are constantly struggling with in this project, right, Jeff? That we're looking at the stuff saying, okay, well, we see this particular scene or this particular trope we know is a racist trope or a sexist trope. Yeah. Um, but does the work still have merit underneath that um, and beyond that? Um, and, and most of the time we can say, yes, we can get something out of it, especially in the context of using it with gaming. But you know, engaging with a work that this, that's this chewy, do you feel like, do I feel like I want to go forward when I, when I can't, you know, I can't uh, sympathize or, or, or even, you know, uh, so that, that can be a difficult process, I think. Yeah, and I also think there's a lot of value in reading pieces like this, not only because there are great ideas embedded in a lot of these stories we're reading, and it's great to have good examples of what we want to be doing in our work emulated in front of us. But I also think it's important to have bad examples in front of us, too, so that when we see women portrayed in ways that don't make us comfortable or people of color described in ways that don't make us comfortable, that reminds us that we don't want to be doing that in our own work. So it's kind of a nice way of kind of keeping that discomfort at the forefront so that it's something we're thinking about while we're creating our, our creating things in the world that we're working within. I would say I agree with that as long as no one's still getting royalties from it. <laughs> oh, okay, fair. I like that. I like that. <laughs> well, sure. In this case, let's, this one's in the public domain, at least in Canada, so we can be sure of yeah, that. Yeah, so totally cool. <laughs> And unfortunately, for fortunately or unfortunately, basically every book that's a part of this project I've been buying used in paperback. So it's really only uh, <laughs> primarily eBay sellers who are profiting, and I guess eBay itself who are profiting from me. But <laughs> um, there is uh, homosexuality in this book that is quite forward with some of the characters, right? I mean, it's mostly male homosexuality. We're not talking about lesbianism or you know non-binary or any of that stuff. But uh, so, what did you think of those depictions in this book? Well, I got to say, you know, uh, I completely missed that. I, I don't know how I did. The only part that I picked up on, um, on page 228, there was a scene. Um, Two blonde young men, muscled like tree trunks and stripped clean naked, wrestled against one another, which 
I was not expecting that moment when that happened. Um, but Hoy, I, honestly, I completely missed um, missed the uh, right. the homosexual. St- right. um, so yeah, so I mean, just to be the so there was uh, Visto, one of the the islanders, uh, who uh, Gaithon was in love with, and he says, "Nah, that's not my thing." And he eventually becomes uh, a lover of the Count of Os Aragu, uh, who is the, How the, did I miss the, that? the big pirate with the bushy beard. Uh, and that guy has the tower, the black tower, and he has his has okay. a cup holder. Um, one of the brothers, the star captains, uh, uh, Philander, or Fander, it was a PH. Anyway, he is also um, Visto's lover briefly for a period of time. Um, so those are the two major characters um, who are sort of on the good guy side. Yeah, um, and... man, that means that the pros must have been really boring <laughs> me in those parts. <laughs> there were honestly moments where, like, I was just reading, right. and then suddenly it'd be like, I don't know what happened right. these and past then, few pages. And then Prince Aureus, who is the guy who has the wrestlers in his cabin, um, is there's a whole conspiracy about whether he's going to be sort of um, sort of shoved out of the way of being the heir to the empire because he's gay. Um, and in fact, then the the Arguria, so who is she is not the heir, she is the second princess, describes how, in fact, when they were young um, and they were all being fostered as peasants, um, she doesn't mention him by name until at the very end of the story that he was in love with, uh, with a, a girl and they were all being fostered and they all drank at the well because they wanted to solve this sort of four-way uh, love square, <laughs> that's for lack of a better word, and then he goes away to be a courtier and he comes back and then he's now... Uh, either gay or bisexual, because he's now Prince Aureus. He was not foppish when he was a young, young man, but he, he, by going to civilization, this city of Salmanessa, where everyone's you know decadent and nobody marries and everybody has a mistress. And he has wait, come are a- you implying that the well turns him gay? Not necessarily that the well turns him gay, but that the well solves problems in a way that people, this peace that it gives, is not necessarily the peace that people are looking for. Mm-hmm. And so that they drank and they swore their vow on at the well. And then he goes to Salmanessa to learn the ways of, you know, court, the court and civilization and all these things. And he comes back and now he's just sort of either bisexual or gay and hanging out with these wrestlers and stuff like that. Because she said, oh, my brother didn't die. That's Prince Aureus, is what she said. Mm-hmm. Right. So and so did the well turn him gay? Did he come to some kind of realization? Oh, I don't know. It's very strange. I mean, it's very hard <laughs> to latch on to. Um, yeah. But but that whatever the well is offering is not what you think it's offering. You know, the peace that it's offering mm-hmm. is not. Sure. <laughs> right. And that's the thing that comes up every time they bring up the well. Right. Uh, definitely. That is interesting. And I remember in the Blue Star that there was, there, there was um, homosexuality present there as well. I remember that the uh, ship captain, the pirate ship captain who was taking, I'm forgetting the main character's name, across the ocean. Right. He had the, he had the, the male lover who was kind of like the the boy who was like swa- swabbing the decks or right. whatever. He was jealous of the protagonist because he thought the captain was in love with him or was yes, yes, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, so it is interesting that uh, Fletcher Pratt does include things like that in his storylines and seems to do it in a pretty nonchalant matter, uh, manner. Um, but also, I mean, we're seeing lots of things in here, too, where like people who are um, dark skinned are referred to as um, being unwashed and dirty and like the fair haired and fair skinned are always being referred to as kind of more trustworthy inherently right. and kind of being more lovely. Right. There's a lot of that stuff going on. There is one um, flip to that, though. The heathen Zik, who are sort of off screen, who are the ones who, um, sub- the ones with the turbans, are actually described as being blonde and blue eyed. Oh, that's interesting. Right. So yeah, it's <laughs> so, all yeah. it's really weird. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's so very weird. <laughs> for the for Mike, because you asked Hoy, my reaction to the homosexual content of the book, um, I responded on two levels. 
on one level, I felt like it was in conversation with Greek epics mm-hmm. um, because it, this very much pulls from like the Western epic uh, sort of cloud space. Mm-hmm. And um, I think anything that is about military stuff right. and is epic, uh, like really can't escape that gravity well of, of having to at least touch on these subjects because mm-hmm. this is how it is. Um, I think the other portion that I reacted to was, you know, the the interpretation in, in the modern ideal of like what's going on here. Um, so this author, you know, studied military movements, campaigns, wars, like really deeply. And I'm pretty sure he had a pretty good idea of like what the lived world of war was like. And uh, I don't think it's a secret that like lots of men alone together and really epic circumstances experiencing trauma together bond very deeply. And there's mm-hmm. this, um, you know, ambiguous, not even a line, but a spectrum of, uh, I think, homosexuality that happens where I think in the past, like some of these guys have said, I'm not actually gay, I just X, Y, Z to the guys who are like, yep, definitely gay. Um, and this is how I am now. Um, and then they come home post-war, totally changed by these experiences mm-hmm. or having been gay the whole time. Um, and now they're back to quote real life and it's a huge adjustment um, mm-hmm. and sometimes they fail. Uh, and I thought I saw echoes of that in The Well of the Unicorn as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was happy to see it being dealt with in a way that didn't like, um, what's the word, uh, a titillizing manner. Um, it was just kind of matter of fact. And yeah. I, I appreciated that about um, how the author approached this particular subject. Right. And that was interesting because... Um, I, I mean, there's still some problems, obviously, because the Prince Ari, as they keep on referring to, is the pretty boy. So there's there's mm-hmm. a, a rejection of effeminacy, but the Count of Os Aragu, he's got this big, he's a bear, right? He's got a big bushy beard, and yeah. you're right, and he's cool. It's like <laughs> he's oh, totally whatever. a bear, right? He's like, oh, <laughs> I can go to the Black Tower with my cup bears, no problem. Nobody calls him out on it. He's like, oh yeah, he's just hanging out in the Black Tower with his his latest boy toy. It's not a big deal. And then you know the one brother who's uh, of the Star Captains, it's like yeah, everyone kind of knows who he is. You know, he's fine. You know, <laughs> God, now, now I want to reread this section. I mean, I, I absolutely don't, but I kind of do. <laughs> right. uh, but so transitioning this conversation over towards the gaming side, um, I'm curious. So Strix, this is a book and an author that was specifically recommended to readers um, and an oftentimes young readers uh, for a place to go for inspiration for your Dungeons and Dragons gaming. So I'm curious, would you recommend this book to people who are looking for inspiration in their Dungeons and Dragons gaming? Uh, no, I would not, sir. <laughs> no, I would not. <laughs> but I guess um, having read this and knowing that it is one of the books that the people who created Dungeons and Dragons did find inspiration in, I'm curious. While you were reading it, where did you had? Were there any kind of light bulbs going off, being like, "Oh, that's where this comes from," or "Oh, that's where this trope comes from"? Yeah, absolutely. Um. So, you know, uh, I have studied the contextual history of Dungeons and Dragons fairly deeply, fairly recently, and all of Gygax's history and all of TSR and how all of those things went down and, you know, where his Greyhawk setting came from and the wargaming background and all mm-hmm. of this. Um, and, you know, my summation is Gygax is just this guy that played a lot of war games but wanted something more, so he went and made it. Yeah. Um, he he wanted to break it down to the individual level. And I feel this is exactly what this book did. So it took this really complex 
moving of the Vulcans and the Denmark people, the the dollar dollarnas. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Um, and um, all these troop movements and you know this troop of fifty and that and whatever and said, okay, we're going to bring it down to a single person. And by the way, he can do magic. P.S. Right. Uh, and I was like, that's so Gagaxian. Right. right. Um, I can see. I can see where this is coming from. Right. And he so want- you know, I think, I think this was a fruitful moment in time when the zeitgeist was shifting mm-hmm. in this imaginal space from purely tactical war games to we want narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can see a bunch of authors and a bunch of creatives and people like Gygax kind of turning all at once in this direction. Um, Cause Gygax wasn't the only one, right. right? And I can totally see, especially in the early art um, and especially in the early scenarios, um, how this sort of weird liminal, we don't quite get this world, but it's happening stuff um, mixes with, um, especially his Greyhawk setting, I would mm-hmm. say, uh, because he in Greyhawk he focused on like a single dungeon and then a single town and then a single nation and kind of left the rest of it blank. Mm-hmm. But it was with this idea that there was a bunch of other stuff going on all the time. Mm. I think you're exactly right on that, and I think also here, although it's more subtle than in Greyhawk, where you can say, "Oh, here's the here's the Mongol equivalent, here's the Arab equivalent." He, Petra uh, Pratt, is like, "Hey, I want to play with the idea of um, Italian mercenaries in the Renaissance slash uh, Greek mythology, which is where the Star Captains are coming from. I want to play mm-hmm. with this sort of uh, faintly Chinese, uh, as you say, the Empire itself." Um, and then also he's drawing on Lord Dunsany because this this whole I don't know why he chose to but this whole thing hinges on a play that Lord Dunsany wrote which is only like twenty pages long and that's the the um, foundation of the you know King Argamenes who they keep on referring to it's a little play that's in one of Dunsany's books that was uh, rarely reprinted uh, we have these Vikings we have um, people who are maybe sort of more Norman sort of you know classically medieval so but he's a little subtle. He's subtle enough to sort of file off the serial numbers in a way that maybe Gary Gygax said, no, Vikings are cool. I'm going to put them over here, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... Absolutely. And Fletcher Pratt was a big war gamer himself and had uh, written and published one of the earliest war games. It was a naval war game that I think he had done in the 40s or the 50s. And in a way, you know, uh, Strix, you mentioned that you were a a lonely kid with not a lot of friends and you turned turned to the Internet for your inspiration. I remember being a lonely kid playing uh, the game of life by myself. And I would play all eight cars and I would roll through it, but I would keep track of which happened to each car. So I knew who's like, who had like the different storylines going and then I'd write little stories where I would incorporate like, oh, so this is when this family inherited the skunk farm. (laughs) And so I'm basically turning a game of life into a story. And this kind of feels like this might be, you know, Fletcher Pratt playing a big war game and turning it into a story, which is exactly what you're kind of describing describing with the whole kind of Gary Gygax turning this into the the, the role-playing thing. So I, I feel like this, in in that sense, is very kind of a spot-on analysis. Hmm. And, and Strix, I know one of the sort of um, maybe false debates within the gaming community is whether story comes first or if story is emergent after the sort of, you know, experience of gaming. Um, do you think... Uh, I mean, maybe not speaking to the broader thing and, and causing just, you know, pitchforks, but in this story itself, maybe, <laughs> you know, I mean, we have a situation and we have a story, right? And so, 
how do those play together, I guess, maybe is a way. Uh, I mean, I have capital O opinions about this, but I'll, <laughs> I'll try to keep it short. Um, so human minds understand the world by telling stories about it. That's literally how we interpret reality is we make narrative about it. So we are narrative creatures. And I think the pool from tactical wargaming to narrative-based stuff, at least how it happened in the 60s and 70s, is a totally natural and normal thing to have happened because that is that is our species. That is what we do. Um, so I am personally of the opinion that um, crunch is interesting and it can be fun and having an element of surprise or not knowing what happens is integral to telling a living story. But in the end, if we're doing a bunch of actions that we cannot make sense out of, if we're just hacking and slashing and whirling and doing all this stuff, but there's no reason, there's no why, there's no emotion, there's no meaning, then there's no purpose. Mm -hmm. It serves nothing for us. So I am totally on the narrative side, (laughs) (laughs) unabashedly. Now, if you were trying to tell a similar story in the sense that you were looking to kind of get on the micro level of kind of a, um, a of a larger scale war in a fantasy world, or maybe not even in a fantasy world, but uh, yeah, actually, let's do a fantasy with magic because that's what's going on here. What kind of a rule set would you like to use to kind of explore what it's like being an individual in kind of a large fantasy war setting? A rule set. Oh yeah, goodness, if, if that's a hard question. In an RPG, in a tabletop RPG, not this story specifically, but just kind of like the experience of one person in a fantasy war, or of a small group so, of people. Maybe Blades in the Dark. Okay. Um, and I say Blades in the Dark because it has elements of individual movement, and then mm-hmm. it has you know the stuff going on in your countdown time um, with larger organizations. Because I think a rule set that deals with war has to have rule sets for the individual and then probably a meta rule set for what's happening with war if you don't want to narrativize it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which may be important for a lot of players that are interested in this kind of setting. They're going to be drawn to that kind of play also, I think. Mm so I think I would hack Blades in the Dark. I don't think I would play (laughs) it as is. Yeah. Um, But I think... Uh, I would go with that because it's modern, it's accessible, which is very important to me uh, and my own value systems. And um, it has structures in place that we could then use as the bones for something interesting for a, a longer campaign that's sustainable with movements that are both at an individual level and at a collective level. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think there is actually a Blades in the Dark one that's about like a fantasy mercenary company, a Blades in the Dark hack that just came out recently. I forget the name of it, but that seems like a good, um, a good way to latch onto that. Um, what about you, Jeff? What's your idea on that? I mean, I think that if I, I don't think that that would be a super successful approach if you wanted to do something like this in Dungeons and Dragons in any edition of Dungeons and Dragons, because I feel like the culture of Dungeons and Dragons is that people really want to see each bit of the battle really played out. And I think you really need a system that allows for war and chaos to be happening around you that you're not necessarily doing a die roll for each thing and that you don't necessarily have a a mechanic for. So I do think that something that is powered by the apocalypse based or something that's a little more story based Mm -hmm. will allow more for everybody to kind of get to a place where they agree kind of what's happening on a larger scale while we're focusing on what's happening on our own kind of personal level. I think that would be important. But a specific system, I don't have one to recommend. All right. 
off the top of my head. I have two ideas on it, although I can't say that I'm I'm super familiar with either one. Uh, You mentioned Apocalypse World. There is that game Night Witches, which is about uh, Russian uh, bomber pilots. Did you work on that? (laughs) There you go. Uh, Uh, So, yeah, Jason Morningstar came out with Night Witches. Um, I'm biased. I'm actually in the art. Sorry. Oh, that's awesome. Um, (laughs) I'm one of the cards. You know how he did that Kickstarter where you could uh, illustrate someone's face. Uh, so I'm on there, but yeah, Night Witches um, is actually a really great example, Ahoy, um, of like individual play periods and then things happening during the countdown time that are uh, impactful, but but do different operations. Uh, so I totally agree that you could you could use Night Witches for that. Mm-hmm. And the other example, Jeff, on a more OSR tip would be to use the faction turns in something like Swords Without Number. Um, or one of those, you know, one of the Kevin Crawford uh, variations of that. So, oh, stars with that number. Yeah, stars with that number. So, yeah. Uh, oh, that's a, that's a good idea. Yeah, because yeah, it's reminding me also kind of of that adventure writing principle, which is that when you're writing an adventure, you want to be you want to be focusing more on what's going to happen if the, if the characters weren't there and weren't intervening. You're not writing what's happening what, what this, what's happening to the characters and what the characters are going to do. You're writing what's happening in the world if they weren't there, present and intervening in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think kind of having a clear idea of that, if you're doing it from more of an OSR perspective and less from a collaborative story gaming perspective, that's something you're probably go- going to want to have clear. Like, this is what happens if this isn't, if, if this army is not addressed here, then they move on to this thing. If you have kind of a little timeline like that, or like a, what is it? Is it a, a point crawl? Is it, yeah, a point crawl. Mm-hmm. Is uh, that? Yeah, I don't think the point crawl is more of a substitute for the hex crawl, but I think that idea, some sort of, uh, something where you're not explicitly saying like, every single uh, segment of time is equal yeah. or a segment of space, which is what a hex crawl or a traditional war game would be, where mm-hmm. you come jump to the points of points of decision. And in a story game, uh, there will be various terms for calling that, you know, moves and whatever. But in a sort of more traditional, uh, the hybrid of the OSR would be, the, as you said, to jump to is the idea of a point crawl rather than going through every single hex in this yeah. wilderness. Um, and so I think the faction turns sort of take care of that in the same way. I'm interested, uh, though, uh, so we have this world that is very specific to what Fletcher, you know, whatever Fletcher Pratt is trying to express in the story. Do you think that there are more stories that can be told uh, in, this, in this world, and, and what rule sets might we use to do that, um, whether it's D&D, again, or a more modern rule set like you were talking with me? Um, do, you see, do you see there's something more in this world that, that's worth drawing out that he's, that he's you know, put forward? <laughs> Okay, so I'm gonna be really honest, yeah. uh, and I'm gonna say no. Okay. Yeah, fair uh, enough. And, I would agree. And the reason, <laughs> the reason why is, um, you know, it's, you know, it's good fiction for its time. Um, and the problem is, we've heard so much like it. We've had so many settings like these. We've had so many structures that um, empower players to embrace a masculine ego, um, and like. It's time to make room for other kinds of stories. Yeah. Um, there is a million different kinds of stories to tell out there through RPGs, and I've seen this before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't need to see it again. I've got it. Uh, I've got the memo. Uh, so um, I would much rather see time and effort and development and money and mentoring and whatever else is needed to go towards. Um, Voices, marginalized voices that traditionally have not had a say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm more interested in the themes and emotions and structures that marginalized folks are interested in playing and engaging with than um, a yet another callback to a 70s era 
uh, wargaming fantasy, um, and that's my that is my personal taste. Sure, sure. Okay, so let's put this. Uh, let's let's um, take it to a, a sort of tributary of that. So uh, we're talking about the setting now. Can you see again a '70s rule set like First Edition Dungeons and Dragons or whatever? Can it be used to do those things without hacking it to death and completely changing it to something that it's not, at least on paper? Um, whether it's you know. Because everybody wants to house rule everything, right? But can we take those existing rule sets and can we make use of them without house ruling them to something that's completely unrecognizable to, you know, people who are, have grown up with that? I mean, I think so, yes. Yeah. I think they, they fit together pretty well. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, this has been a really fun conversation and we are running short on time. So Strix, I'm curious, is there any kind of like thing about this text that you really wanted to chat about that we really kind of didn't get an opportunity to get to? Yes, I wanted to talk about the politics of the well of the unicorn and the idea of a metaphor of Soma and how it relates to other fiction that, um, you know, engages with the idea of Soma and passivity and war. and what it was really saying about it and whether or not we agree. <laughs> I'm not familiar with the idea of the concept of Soma. So can you explain that to me? Um, that's from a Brave New World, I think. Okay. Um, it is it is a pill or a medication that you ingest that um, pacifies you. Oh. Uh, right? Um, right. And it was a, a big theme for some authors um, in I would say the fifties ish about you know the panacea of the common folk or how to deal with the common folk versus um, agency and freedom and what we're really trading away for uh, peace right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that is worth it I feel like on a very high level this book really interrogates that um, but we lose it a lot on the lower levels because it's so impenetrable right mm-hmm. and, and that is still addressing sort of a a sort of heroic arc, a, a, a heroic mythological arc. And I think Soma, um, again, I'm not as well-versed in this, but it's um, a term from certain branches of Buddhism, right? For, for And so, and then there's always the issue in Buddhism of whether it, you, it's better to sort of accept passively things that you can't change or to rage, rage, but then not, then lose serenity and lose your sort of, you know, your chance of sort of, of, you know, achieving oneness with the universe, right? And so... Um, as you say, what, what, what role, what, when is it appropriate to be passive, right? And when is it appropriate to sort of be active and then being, what does active, being active look like? Does it look like um, the sort of traditional Western idea of, you know, raging against fate and being, you know, a heroic, as you talk about, bringing in the sort of heroic Greek idea of, of, of battling your destiny? Or is it something else? Is it more uh, communally based? Is it more, what, what can it be, right? Sure. And on page 121 of my edition, Melibo says to Error, you can be happy or heroic, but not both. And I think that is a part of it. It's like if he were to take the, uh, if he would go to well, the, the Well of the Unicorn and drink from it, he could be happy. And he could be happy with his wife and they could have a, a beautiful life together, but he would not be a heroic leader of men. Um, and to Error, it seems like by the end of the story, he's more invested in being a heroic leader of men than he is in peace or happiness or stability. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I think it's a really fruitful topic. I wish we we had a half hour to talk about just that. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. And especially with how it's kind of framed with um, his masculinity versus her her femininity. You know, I think this because also this is something that comes up in the Blue Star as well, where, you know, w- magic comes from women. But in order for men to get it, they need to steal it from women. And in doing that, they become less of a man themselves. And there, there's a lot of this very strange stuff happening with uh, gender and um, masculinity and femininity in this right, right. storyline, especially in terms of kind of looking at war versus peace. Right. And, and, and once you throw Evadne into the mix, it becomes even more complicated because she's embra- uh, embracing even more sort of the masculine principle than he's willing to go for, at least at that yeah. point in the story, right? This, this idea of a masculine principle. And that she's, to some extent, contemptuous of him, but also admir- admires him, right? Because she, she professes that she's sort of in love with Arar also, uh, but that she also, you know, can't sort of... Uh, adopt his his mindset at that point because he's sort of trying to take stuff in and she's like no you got to go go do this and whatever you want is the thing that you want and that's (laughs) sure and then there's the whole thing with the kitten where he finds the kitten and it basically becomes like his this like mascot of his but then the two women end up accidentally together in a way killing the kitten because the the new blonde one wants to play with it but then that scares the cat so then it jumps on evadne and then she swats it away which kills it yeah uh, so I don't know if that's like the women killing his innocence or I, it's I'm masculine sure. vulnerability and go. how it's so scary <laughs> and how dealing with the world, you know, uh, takes strips you of something. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Oh, man. So much good stuff there <laughs> or or not good stuff. But oh, no, so think... much interesting stuff to mine. I mean, we've, we've talked about that. And some of the books that have been very tough, but they have been worth really unpacking. And I think that this this one, as you say, uh, Whitney, definitely bears at least another half hour, but we just don't have it in the format of the show. <laughs> it was a wild journey, man. Let me just say a wild journey. And again, thank you so much for being game and willing to do this, because this was definitely one of our um, hardest uh, assignments we've given any of our guests so thank you well, for being thank a sport. you <laughs> strix are there any projects that are coming up or are recently released that you want people to know about that um are, you know are out coming up there either in your own or that are part of a larger project sure so i'm a busy bee um we just had a game out of my company uh hidden path come out called raccoon lagoon uh it is a vr game it's like Animal Crossing meets just cozy funness. Uh, I love and Animal it's Crossing. adorable. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody loves it. Uh, so you should play if you Aww. don't get VR sick. Um, coming up at XOXO, we're going to, well, we. Uh, so a secret project that I'm working on for a company called Aconites. Um, this is the first time I'm mentioning this publicly. Ooh. Are going to be um offering a play test of something that we're working on at the XOXO festival in Portland in a couple of weeks. So looking forward to that. Um, and then currently at my full-time job where I'm a narrative director um, on a AAA game, uh, I'm under like 5,000 NDAs and I cannot tell you gotcha. anything at all. So <laughs> You can reach out to the internet and kill us, but that would be... <laughs> exactly. Now, Strix, if people want to find you online, uh, what is their best way of doing that? The best way of doing that is Twitter. That's where I live. Uh, on Twitter, I'm the underscore Strix, S-T-R-I-X. Strix, very cool. Perfect, thank you. And Hoy, if people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? Sure, appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or appendix underscore n on Twitter. We're also on MeWe and Facebook. You should, we should be pretty easy to find. 
Uh, if you like our show or just have strong feedback, do leave it on iTunes or your podcast of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes. So if you go to patreon.com slash appendix and book club, you can go ahead and show your support there as well. We release earlier episodes and also we have our patron book clubs where we meet up with our patrons and our listeners of the show and discuss the books with them before we discuss it with our special guests. So if you want to get on there, that's a good way of showing us your support. We would love to quickly give a few shout outs to some of our supporters. Thank you to Noah Green, Peter Martino, William Suter, Fletcher Vradenberg, Andrew Sternick, and Andy Action. Thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. And Strix, thank you so much for being on. I really learned a lot today. Uh, thank you both for the opportunity. This has been really great. See you in the stacks. Read on. Bye. The library is closed.